Thank you, Sam. That was certainly a long reading. Carry on today our drama of the passion. The happy texts, right? Take from my text this morning the 14th verse of the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Please pray with me. Holy God, as we wade into this difficult text, give us eyes to see and ears to hear a message for us today. Now, I've often thought perhaps we get our interpretation wrong on this passage. Mark the Evangelist paints it in such a negative light. Are the evil scribes and priests led by the arch-villain, the high priest, Caiaphas himself. There's the crowd baying for blood with the eerie shouts of crucify him. So little, little hairs on your neck stand up. It's hard to read this passage through and not shudder at the evil of these people. There is no passage in the New Testament that exhibits the darkness of the human soul quite like this one. I have to ask, and maybe I'm just being a bit, a bit contrarian, are these people really that evil? Are we being fair to them? Or have we been deceived by Mark's obvious bias and our later views on Jesus as a son of God? I'm one of those people who tries to see others in a positive light. I firmly believe that people in their core are good. And indeed, when you ask someone, do you think you're a good person overall, people usually feel compelled to tell you the truth. Yes, I'm a good person. Thank you for asking. (laughs) I mean, are you a good person? Well, of course you are. You're a loyal church attender. Boom, automatically good. (laughs) You see, this is why we need an alternative reading to this text. Like all people, I'm sure Caiaphas and the scribes and the priests had their bad moments. I bet there were times at home when they lost their temper or skipped out on synagogue on a Saturday, or spent the night drinking wine with friends and doing funny voices while reading passages from the Bible. Maybe, maybe you guys don't do that. So yes, they had their bad parts, but these were people who cared desperately for the health and strength of Jewish identity and the Jewish state at a time when it was very difficult to do so. The Romans were their overlords. They are the ones who called the shots. At any given moment, the strength of the the Roman legions could come crashing down on the the heads of the Jewish people. If that happened, it could cause irreparable damage to Judaism. And also, of course, for the lives of the chief priests and the scribes. How would they feed their families if the Romans forced them out of a job? Have you ever thought about that? They had a duty to their faith and to their families. Maybe we should give them the benefit of the doubt. So along comes this brigand, this troublemaker, this person who heals without the appropriate deference to priests, this person who riles up the simple folk in the countryside with talk of the coming kingdom of God. And what do you expect these good people in leadership to do? I'm honest. I mean, what would you do in the face of an upsetter of the apple cart like Jesus of Nazareth? By all all appearances, this man was threatening to take on the mantle of a Davidic Messiah and potentially launch a revolt. Those consequences would have been disastrous for all. 
truly disastrous for all. When you run afoul of the Romans, they burn your fields, they seize your property, they kill anyone who has the appearance of resistance. If you were a good protector of the people, or those people in leadership, would you honestly let someone like Jesus roam free? It would be immoral to let him preach like that. You would be a defender of the faith and the Jewish people if you ensured he was behind bars forever. But if all Jesus had done was to be a potential threat as a brigand, the chief priests and their allies might have been able to forgive him. They were nice people, good people after all, pretty much the forgiving types. But that's not all Jesus did, oh no. Jesus took, also took hundreds of years of Jewish thought and practice and just threw it out the window. It would be one thing if Jesus tried to engage the chief priests in, say, an academic setting where they could have shown how wrong he was. But then Jesus had to go on the road, talking to those uneducated country bumpkins, getting all these thoughts in their heads. Everyone knows that the rural folk in Galilee have this thing against the Jerusalem elite, those elitists. Jesus then took that and tossed the proverbial bomb in the center. Do you know how long it will take to undo the damage that he did with all those promulgation of fake news that he was doing? Some history is important here. After the exile from Jerusalem in 586 BC, Judaism went through a total rewrite. The entire nature of what it meant to be Jewish changed. The religion went from being a religion of kings and prophets and the temple to a religion of the book. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, reached their final form during this period. A class of scribes and interpreters arose to impose some sense of religious order on things. When the temple was rebuilt, it was rebuilt in service of the Torah and its interpreters not in service of the king and his court. This system survived the conquest by Persians and Greeks. It survived a major rebellion and yet more conquest. And even though there were plenty of discontented people in the first century, this system, this century that relied, this system that relied on the book with its official interpreters and hierarchy of officials centered on the temple in Jerusalem, this system worked. It was, a very, it was the very historical manifestation of what God wanted for the Jewish people. It provided meaning for society and life amidst horrible circumstances. Was the system perfect? No. But then Jesus had to call it all into question. And because he had that healing thing down, people believed him in droves. When he first came into Jerusalem, what did he threaten to do? He overturned the tables of the money changers. These money changers who were essential for allowing pilgrims from other countries to buy birds and grains for their offering at the temple. Without those money changers, the pilgrims visiting for the Passover could not seek forgiveness from the temple sacrifice. Can you believe that he did that? I believe he had this gall. He's questioning the whole system, the whole order. Now, I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision for the chief priests and the scribes to condemn Jesus to death. They were forced to do it. It was Jesus' fault. If he had just respected the rules, if he had gone to work at Goldman Sachs like like Joseph wanted him to, if he had never gone out and seen that crazy man, John the Baptist... All this ugliness could have been avoided. Now, I agree, the false testimonies in court were a little underhanded. The placing of people in the crowd before Pilate, who were told to yell, crucify him, was less than ideal. The buying off of one of his closest friends was a sad necessity in order to keep things quiet. But I think on the whole, when you judge the morality of it, you'll see that the chief priests and the scribes did the right thing. They saved the system. They kept things in place. It was best for the vast majority of people. History will look back and thank them for it. Right? 
It's, uh, it's funny how these things keep happening. This form of justice. You see it all the time. Those in power use the, using the legal system or a distortion of it to maintain the status quo. There always has to be an enemy, a scapegoat. And there has to be some way to excise that tumor to save the body politic and keep things the way they are. There are the obvious instances, like the show trials in the 1930s Soviet Union during Stalin's great purge of the military and government, or as we see in the modern-day equivalent in North Korea. I do feel bad for Otto Warmbier and his family. There are the obvious instances of this type of justice that we see in our own history. One of the most famous, famous examples is the case of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American from Chicago who went down to Mississippi to visit his mother's family in 1955. One day, he supposedly whistled and asked a young white woman in town for a, out for a date. Later that evening, he was captured, tied up, beaten, and tortured before being shot and dumped into a river. Because his mother was from Chicago, and because it was the mid-1950s, and there was a growing movement against Jim Crow, the Chicago Police Department was able to put pressure on the Mississippi Sheriff to find the body and attempt some sort of justice. When Emmett Till's body was brought home to Chicago, his mother had her son, her only son's, body displayed in an open casket. Pictures were taken of his mangled face and plastered all over newspapers throughout the country. The perpetrators down in Mississippi actually bragged about their crime were arrested. When the trial came, there were newspapers who covered it from all over the country. The all-white jury acquitted the murderers with less than an hour of deliberation. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew what happened. The murderers saw themselves as righteous crusaders. They were protecting the virtue of white women in Mississippi. They thought they had done the right thing, and the justice system of that county agreed with them. But these are the obvious examples of justice gone awry in the service of the status quo. These are the easy examples, because, they, because we can keep them at a distance, because they are not us. What are the other examples, the other trials of Jesus, where the chief priests and the scribes were just trying to do the right thing? During the 1970s, New York instituted a series of harsh drug penalties known as the Rockefeller Drug Laws, after Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York at the time. New York was in the midst of a heroin epidemic. The mood in the country had shifted. The, these drug pushers needed to be penalized. The problem was weak enforcement. The state needed more of a deterrent. The bad guys needed to be behind prison for a long, long time, 15 years to life. The Rockefeller drug laws caught on around the country. Law and order was needed. It was the call of the day. And these lawmakers were good people. They were nice people, and they wanted the bad guys behind bars. They wanted clean streets. So across the country, jails began to fill up. The jails became full of evil black and brown people. Long sentences for relatively minor crimes. During the crack epidemic of the 1980s, it was the same story. Harsh penalties were needed. Trust me, they would work. It was good for the country. These inner cities, sad that these inner cities are such dens of crime. Lock them up. So the good people did just that. It's easy to find more money for prisons in state legislatures. People serving long time for minor drug offenses became hardened in prison. They had no options when they got out of prison. The prison cycle continued. It reinforced the notion that these were bad people. Only in the last 15 to 20 years have the good people admitted that these Rockefeller drug laws did not work. They only caused more problems than they solved, and they created, by far, the largest prison population in the industrialized world. 
There's a lot of lingering bitterness over the Rockefeller drug laws. We are in the midst of an opioid drug epidemic right now. Millions all over the country are suffering and continue to suffer. Thankfully, it seems as though there's enough attention at the problem that things might begin to change. But it's hard not to notice a difference in approach between the response to the heroin and especially the crack epidemics and our current epidemic. People of color are quick to point out that when the epidemic affected black people, the response was harsh prison sentences, 15 years to life. When the problem affected white people, the response was compassion and treatment. See, that's the funny thing about the chief priests and the scribes. They don't react the same way in every case. When it's someone like Jesus or Emmett Till, someone who challenges the status quo, someone who's a threat to the established order, the reaction is harsh. It has to be. Things must be preserved for the good of all, you understand. But when the bank HSBC was fined by the U.S. government $800 million for abetting money laundering for known terrorists and drug traffickers, not one person went to jail. This is a bank that made over a billion dollars aiding the enemies of the United States. No one went to jail. Yet someone caught with pot on the streets in the 1990s went to jail for years. This passage, this story, keeps coming up. It's almost as though it's a part of human nature. The biblical text is relevant for us today. You know, I'm amused by the talk of law and order today. One of the big law and order issues is the federal immigration law. We really have to deport 11 million people. We really have to. It's about keeping law and order. It's about respecting our laws. We are a law-abiding people, and we certainly don't want open borders. Think of what that would do. It would be like the U.S. before the 1920s, when the economy was booming and nearly every one of our ancestors came over. No. We need law and order for the good of our culture, for the good of our society. A couple months ago, I was, I was with several other clergy in a meeting with Representative John Culberson, who represents this district here in Texas. John Culberson, a good Christian and a nice person, is very big on law and order. You must respect the laws of the country. He kept repeating that again and again during our meeting. He was all about compassion for immigrants, overflowing with compassion, as he listened to the stories of the dreamers who were with us that day. He asked about their families and their situations. He felt for them, but he is a law and order person. One of the rabbis who was there in the meeting asked Congressman Culberson what it would mean for the the economy and for the moral fabric of our country if all 11 million undocumented people were to be deported. Many of them, if not most of them, have relatives, friends, even children who are here legally. What would that mean? What would it look like if law and order were actually enforced? Oh, that will never happen, John Culberson assured us. Those were his exact words. He's all about law and order, you understand. It's crucial to protect our country but he doesn't want it enforced, and he doesn't want to create a path to citizenship for undocumented residents, and he opposes passing a DREAM Act. Oh, John Culberson is a nice person, and like Caiaphas, he likes power as well. That's just the way things are. You see, this is why I like Jesus. Jesus is not an uncontroversial figure. As I said last week, anyone like Jesus who runs afoul of the powers that be to such an extent that he's put to death is not an uncontroversial figure. Not only that, Jesus constantly challenges us. He's not one of those folks who sits around massaging our ego and telling us that all will be well. Jesus stands with those who need a voice. He heals those in need of healing. He brings good news to the captives, the blind, the poor, and the oppressed. And he also confronts those in power and forces them to see, to really see the nature of their actions. It's important that we take Caiaphas and the chief priests seriously. They were real human beings. And yes, they thought they were doing what was right. 
in putting Jesus through a monkey trial so they could put him to death. They are not the personification of evil. They are all too human, and they are all too much like us. Like the chief priests and the scribes, we are in positions of privilege. We are a predominantly white congregation in a society that gives great privilege to being white. Broadly speaking, we are a congregation that is comfortable financially, far more so than the vast majority of people in this world. We have the benefits of education and a high degree of social capital. Because of all that, we run the risk, we do run the risk, of being like Caiaphas and the chief priests. Real risk. It's there. So how do we present ourselves, how do we prevent ourselves from falling into that trap? Defending the status quo even when it might harm the innocent. What are we supposed to do to remove our blinders and see the situation for what it really is? Tip? Remember this scene. Or specifically, remember Jesus in this scene. He knew what was going on. He knew what he was was up against. He didn't make excuses. He didn't look for a plea bargain. He let their desperate actions speak for themselves, their motivations, their machinations shown through. Jesus maintained his innocence, which serves for all of us as a stark reminder of how many times the innocent suffer injustice. And the injustices are always the most egregious, and the justices that are always the most egregious are those where those in power punish those without power. Just like this scene in the Gospel of Mark. If there's one thing we need to bear in mind, it is to be rigorous in our examination of where the power lies. Those in power will always justify their actions. They are by and large nice people. Their friends see them as nice people. They see themselves as defending the order and protecting the greater good. The chief priests and scribes do it here in the Bible, and people do it today throughout society and the world. But we, we Christians, we who follow the one who was accused, we have the responsibility to maintain a hermeneutic of suspicion. As a phrase that has long been a favorite of liberation theologians, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to reveal the injustices of society, you must maintain a hermeneutic of suspicion, an interpretive lens that questions, constantly questions those in power to see what systems are at work that oppress in the name of good order. You all have a high calling. You have the intellectual capacity and the privilege to discern the forces that are actually at play in society. You have the benefit of the example of Jesus. You can rigorously investigate when the powers of economic privilege, racial privilege, gender privilege are at play. You have a voice that can be raised on behalf of Jesus, and you are called to raise it, even when it might feel uncomfortable. This is great news. Your voice has a place, a key place, in our society, in our culture, here in Houston. And God wants you to use that voice. The story of Jesus' trial keeps repeating itself. We can look to Jesus if we can force other good people also to look at Jesus. Then maybe, just maybe, we can begin to end the cycle. The powerless need your voice. They need the voice of Jesus to keep ringing in the ears of the good so that good, so that God's justice can actually be done.